takes a lot out of me to hit that last note but i feel like i nail it every time you're uh you're getting your breathing under control now the more you're singing that tune i can tell the uh the advancement in your singing abilities has come a long way thank you i appreciate that <laughs> for those of you that are just joining us uh this is the blues on parade podcast where all we do is talk chelsea and of course talk shit about everyone else and uh, today we're going to be talking some shit about AC Milan. Another victory, another clean sheet. I don't think life as a Chelsea fan at this particular point in time can get any better. So I'll start with you, Andres. How do you feel? I woke up feeling a little sick. But the way I feel about Chelsea right now is I'm on cloud nine. I'm, I don't think... This is a manager bump. I don't think this is a temporary thing. I think we're the train's rolling. Good luck slowing us down. Um, what about you? Do you share the same sentiment? Dude, this was... I mean, before the first Milan match, we were at the bottom of the table, or bottom of the group, and it didn't look too good with these two matches coming up. And the fact that we went 5-0 on aggregate goals um, was... And, and the way that we played as well, just overall. I mean, Potterball's got me buzzing. I would raise one even higher. We also beat Wolves 3-0. So that's 8-0 wow. aggregate in our last, what, 270 minutes of football. Wow, that was quick math. Yeah. Not bad, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that obviously the Milan results are way more impressive than the Wolves results, but still, I'll yeah, take it. Yeah, yeah, I'll still take it. Um, so yeah, let's just hop into it. Milan zero, Chelsea two. Um, started off again in uh, three four three. Um, looks like we've been you know sticking to that position for the last couple of games. Kepa remains in goal, a back three of Chalaba, Tiago, and Koulibaly. Um, Reese James and Chilwell as the wing backs, Jorginho and Kovacic in the midfield. Mason Mount, Aubameyang, and Sterling up front. So back to our strong 11 after rotating the side uh, against Wolves. And man, I think we, got, we owe an apology, guys. We own apology to Mason Mount. <laughs> we definitely do because he's been. I actually no. I, I'm gonna kind of. I'm going to give myself like a little bit of credit because we were saying for a long time that he's earned enough of like sweat equity to not be dropped from the side, and I don't think we were necessarily calling for him to be dropped, but. He was undeniably playing poorly. He still hasn't scored a goal in league play, I, th I believe, unless he scored one that I missed. So, you know, we were playing poorly, and it was just a combination of the both and thought maybe, you know, he could use a break. But people think seem to think that we were hoping to just drop him completely off, off the roster, it seemed like, but... That, Big shout okay. out to Mason Mountain. I just want to say something on that because we got called out a few times. In no way, shape, or form was either of us three or any of us three down on Mason Mount. All we were calling for was if the player's not performing, might be a good idea to sit him out for a game or two so he can get a hard reset. I was, I mean, 
you guys could kind of add on to this, but my big argument was the leash is just way too long for him and not long enough for some of the other players, you know, that aren't necessarily getting time. Or, for example, guys like Kai, Kai Havertz, who came in, kind of stunk, and got completely dropped. So that was my thing. It's like, if you're not playing well, don't, like, there's no reason for you to continue starting every match. And that's my point. Just because it's Mason Mount and we're playing favorites doesn't mean that he's exempt from that rule either. But good for him. I'm glad he played well. And long may it continue. Yeah, I mean, the guy wasn't playing at the level we expect him to be at. And so, like Zach said, it wasn't us saying, like, Mount's done here. It's more just... Why is it is it a good thing if he keeps underperforming to just force him in there and him lose his confidence? That's what we were arguing for. But regardless, I mean, Mason Mount was one hundred percent the catalyst in this in this match, and he did everything he needed to do in forty five minutes. Yeah, and the fact that, like you said, forty five minutes is all it took for him to play. Um, it's it's crazy. Uh, 35 touches, three key passes, one penalty, one. Two out of two long balls completed, two tackles. Uh, I mean, Andres, talk a little bit about, uh, about what you saw from Mace. Again, he, he lined up as a right winger, but in reality, he's getting this free roll. Um, I think the one thing we've seen him do a lot more under Potter is, is the run past the nine. Which, you know, shout out again to CFC Central for, for doing the whole analytical picture-by-picture picture thing. He shows Obama Yang dropping in, which allows Mason to then make the vertical run past him. You know, you pull the center back, you let one of the guys, whether it's Raheem or, or Mason, run in behind. And, and that led to a very controversial, correct call slash harsh red that sent to Mori packing to, to the locker room early in the first half. And again, that all comes from those runs that Mount is now doing and, and sort of adding a new dimension to our game instead of just passing the ball to feet and recycling. So I think that's a big one. Apart from that, he just looks like he's more of more of a commander on the pitch. I feel like anytime he has the ball, he's scanning, he's looking for a pass. He's He looks a little less erratic than he did earlier this season. So he just has his, his juju back. You know, he's he's back to where he should be, and we're allowing him to have a little bit more freedom offensively, which is nice. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I think, I think he's being a lot more direct with his passing as well. You can clearly tell what he's trying to do on the pitch. In the last, I, I want to I throw the Wolves game in there too because it did feel like he sort of started gaining that form in that match also, man of the match performance in that. But... For me, it just looks like he's a lot more confident in his game. He's more comfortable in the role that he's playing. And it seems like he doesn't have as much direction um, in the attacking third. He has that little bit more freedom to sort of pick out those risky passes that he wants. He also had a really nice snapshot with his left foot. I think it just went wide or the keeper stopped it. But, mm -hmm. you know, he, he's starting to pick and choose those opportunities, when to attack, and then, then when to retain possession. And I think that's just going to help his player development tenfold compared to the way he was playing under Tuchel where me and Andres talked about it you know pretty much till the death of last podcast but you know about how he needed to have more of a De Bruyne-esque kind of freedom on the pitch as opposed to being strictly told to keep possession retain the ball and don't fuck it up it's it, it just seems way more cohesive when you know in the first two thirds he's doing that but in the final third He's just sort of given the license to do whatever the hell he wants and be Mason Mount. And uh, I think that's what we're finally starting to see here. And, and like I said, we weren't down on him. We knew, this, we knew he had this ability. I think it was just more so, at least the last few matches, Potter tweaking mm -hmm. his role a little bit to find that sweet spot and to find exactly where he could fit into this team. And, you know, it, it, it's, been, it's been fantastic. I think, this is, I think this is probably the most natural position he's played in under any manager so far, if I'm going to be completely honest. You know, just playing behind the attackers, pulling all of the strings, 
also putting in some of the defensive work as well. But the key is he's high enough uh, he's high enough on the pitch still to where we can utilize his pressing and utilize his energy to win the ball back as well. So Potter Potter got this one spot on, and all credit goes to Mason Mount as well too because. You know, it's one thing for the manager to take the reins off, but it's a completely other thing for the player to kind of, you know, shoulder that burden and, and, and you know, sort of fight through a little down run of form that he had. Yeah, I mean, you got to give a lot of credit, honestly, to Graham Potter, though, um, because we weren't seeing this out of Mason Mount under Tuchel um, at all throughout Tuchel's reign. And granting him the freedom that that Potter's given him, he looks like a completely different player, and it's been like a joy to watch. Can we just talk a little bit? I just want to have a discussion about the Tomori red card, because obviously it affected the match a lot. Um, And, you know, just like the background story of it, him being, you know former Chelsea player, you know, big return match. Well, I mean, it was it was at San Siro, but still. Um and for him to be sent off that early in the match. I mean, the people trying to debate whether that was a foul or not, that's the wrong debate because it was clearly a foul. The real debate is should that have been a red or a yellow card because I personally didn't like the red card. I mean, obviously I liked it, but I didn't <laughs> like the call. Like, I thought it was a bit harsh um, for the foul that was the act that was committed. Andres, what do you think? It's, it's tough because was he the last man? Yes. Was it a clear goal-scoring opportunity? Yes. And did he foul Mason Mount from behind? Yes. On paper, all those things add up to a red card. I think there should be maybe some alterations to the rule. Like, if this happens outside the box, 100% a red card because now the other team only has a free kick. You know, they're not 100% going to score now. You know, that was an... A different situation i think because you're getting a red and the penalty it just feels what, what do you call it double jeopardy double yeah so it's just that early in the game like you said it feels like most refs would probably just do the yellow card and the penalty but if you're calling the penalty there i think you kind of have to do the red card if you're the referee like i don't know not, if you have not, to though thank you Here's my thing. It's not, it wasn't like a foul where they were going like shoulder to shoulder and he like slid and he accidentally killed Mason Mount. It was intentional. He was reaching, yeah. he was pulling him. So there was intent there. And I think that's what pushes it from a yellow to a red. Again, I do think it's very soft. But if it was like a, oh, Tomori tripped and took out Mason Mount, yellow card and a penalty all day. But everyone saw Mason Mount is yards ahead of Tamori. Tamori catches up and is pulling him back with his arms. If Mason Mount gets yanked to the floor on that first pull, everyone's going to scream for a red. Just because he decided to battle through it and wait till he got pulled again and even was able to get a little tiny, tiny toe poke down, people are like, no, 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 not a red. But if Mason Mount fell the first time, 100%. Yanked to the ground, red card. So I, I'm... I understand the call. I think it's soft, but I still think it's correct. I So I'm going to get a little technical here, but if, if we're going to... I always hear this argument. Well, if that foul happened at, in the middle of the pitch, it wouldn't have been a red card. If that foul happened right. in the middle of the pitch, it would have been a yellow. Let's be honest. Because there's other people. Yeah, yeah. that's a point. Yeah, yeah. Maury's it's the a, last man inside the box. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I was going to get to. The thing that everybody's forgetting is that a red card can be defined as a denial of a clear goal-scoring opportunity, period. If we're just going based on that premise, then that's an attempt to deny a goal-scoring opportunity. If Mason Mount wasn't getting pulled back and his shoulder wasn't getting pulled back or his jersey wasn't getting pulled, whatever it was, 
Maybe he gets better balance and takes a better shot on goal. I know he stayed on his feet. I know he still shot the ball at the goal and still got something on target. But guess what? I'm not going to give him credit. I'm not going to say that it's not a red card just because he stayed on his feet and fought through it like a man. Even though most footballers are pussies and would fall over in that situation and cry wolf and act like they broke every bone in their body, it doesn't mean that that's a red card just because they went down either. So for me, it had nothing to do with like the, the harshness of the pull or any of that or him not falling, none of that. It was purely a matter of Mason Mount was in on goal. It was him 1v1 against the keeper and Tamori denied him from a clear goal scoring opportunity. So for that, it's a red card for me all day, all day. Hey, Sam, Sam, have you question for you here? Have you ever, ever said something into a crowd and everybody hears you? And then there's that one friend that says the exact same thing again and thinks it's his own idea. <laughs> no, Zach just wanted to clarify on the fact that if if he didn't fall, or that because he didn't fall, people thought that it wasn't a card. But that was the that was the biggest argument. And no, to be fair, Andres, I, I used that argument right after it happened in the Discord. So I'm not having any of that. Hey, but I said it was I a think, denial of a goal scoring opportunity from I the think, beginning. I think to be honest, it's in my opinion, I would like a ref to. Um, base, take into account where, like, at what point the match is in. Like, the fact that it was, well, the 30th minute, was it I think maybe even earlier than that? Earlier than that, yeah. Um, You know, like, the, it, the game had barely kicked off, and now the rest of the game, they're, Milan is playing with 10 men based off one foul. Like, you know, like, the punishment, so... If if let's say Tamori doesn't foul him, it's a goal. Okay, that's that's what we get. Right. But now, giving giving the pen is basically putting us back at what we were before. You know, getting that goal. Double punishment. It's it's it's. I think it is double punishment to give a red card at that time. It's pretty much like you're ending the game right then and there. And I think that. Refs should take that into consideration, whether they're giving a red card or a yellow card. I mean, obviously the severe, like if it was like a severe, obvious, like hard foul, then, you know, maybe it is a red card, but just how soft it was, the time of the match, the importance of the match, I think refs should have some discretion and and make that a yellow card instead. That's my but opinion. Then, but then you can have the thing that happens there is then you can have the argument that like Jorginho misses the penalty, Tomori's still on the pitch, and then they score. Okay. Yeah, so then, I mean, okay, Mason Mount could have easily missed his chance too as one v one. Right. Never, right, right. We no, we understand. I understand that. I guess like there's always gonna be the the devil's advocate of it all. I, I wish there was a way of like, okay. Mori stand outside of the field. Let's see what happens in the penalty. They scored the penalty. Okay, yellow card. Oh, they missed oh, the penalty. Tamori, the red. Get out of here. <laughs> and then that way, it's like, all right. It's bad. Then we'll it's miss the penalty on purpose. <laughs> it's and, and have Tamori just stand there, just waiting to see what happens with the penalties. Yeah. <laughs> like halfway down he the get, tunnel. I would miss we'll it make on it, purpose. We'll make it even more of a Thunderdome situation. He has to defend the penalty kick. He has to be the keeper. <laughs> he puts on gloves. For his, for his I honor. I love this idea. This is how you know this is an American podcast because <laughs> we have stupid ass ideas like this. They should just eliminate the, the red card and just institute a clear path foul. <laughs> flagrant one and flagrant two? Yeah. Um, all right, moving on. Abamyang, back on the score sheet again. It's so nice to have a striker. He makes it three goals in three matches. Uh, I'm loving what I'm seeing so far. He's putting away those striker chances, and it's just something that I missed so dearly. It's been uh, ever since we lost Diego Costa. We haven't had a player like that who puts away those chances, and it's 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 awesome. It begs the question, and this comes from at Jonomics2. 
Is it too early to say the number nine curse is lifted? Zach, what do you think? Um, I called it from the beginning, and I'm not, I don't want to gloat here, but I said if we sign a Bamiang, he's going to score a bunch of goals. And that's all he's really done. And, and what, also what he's done is he's proved that you can effectively play as a striker with minimal touches in the entire game and still affect the game and still be a match winner. Unlike Romelu Lukaku. Um, he, just, he just knows where the fucking goal is, doesn't he? And, and, and all of his finishes are pure striker's finishes. They're instinctive. They're, um, they're lethal. And, and, and where, where he puts the ball, he actually means it, right? Like, he really sticks the ball in the back of the net. Especially on this goal, he had every right to let Raheem Sterling just kind of, like, gallop onto that and smack it himself. But Aubameyang runs through Sterling and smashes it near post, just like I want all of my strikers to do. I want my strikers to be selfish like that. I want them to be assholes. I want their teammates to be pissed because they shoot too much. That's what a striker is supposed to do. They're supposed to have the biggest ego on the pitch. And I think Aubameyang, obviously he does have a huge ego, probably the biggest on the pitch until Ziyech comes on. But <laughs> besides that, it's with his finishing you know, his, his attitude in front of goal is if I touch the ball in the 18, I'm turning and I'm shooting immediately. And uh, it wasn't only the goal that got me on this one. It was, uh, it was a fact that he actually dropped in and picked up a loose ball. I forgot what exactly happened, but I think it was like a pass that just had a little bit too much weight on it or something like that. And the ball goes right just about to the top of the 18. And Aubameyang actually leaves the center forward position, drops into the midfield to pick the ball up, and then makes lays the ball off, I think, to Kovacic, and then just darts straight into the box. And then by that time, Kovacic got at the mount, mount with a really, really nice wall pass, and then obviously the finish. So it's more than just the goals that he's scoring. I think we're starting to see other pieces of his game where he can contribute. I still think that there's a lot to be had there with the bombing, and I think also even with Broja, just in terms of purely running the channels and stretching defenses, um, you know, when we're on the back foot, I still think that's yet to be seen because we haven't really had the opportunity to be on the back foot just yet. So, um, but man, I have zero complaints when it comes to Aubameyang. I think he's been phenomenal. I think uh, he's going to continue scoring goals for us. And um, I think we're in a really difficult situation in a good way heading into next season, should his form continue and should Broja continue to keep performing every time he steps on the pitch. It's just a really good problem to have. Yeah, you mentioned the fact that Aubameyang does this whole thing where he doesn't need crazy amount of touches to get involved. And I'm not saying that he's getting, you know, infamously nine touches like a forward who shall not be named. But Mason Mount got 35 touches of the ball in 45 minutes. In, what, 70-something minutes, Aubameyang only got 36. And he still got his goal. So he sort of picks and chooses when to get involved. He still drops in. Like you said, his goal came from him checking into the ball to feet and then turning back and going into the space he created. And the other part is, you know, Zach mentioned how he's selfish and all that. But I also think it's a little bit more than just selfishness that, that adds to his game. I think other players would have just stared at Raheem Sterling being the closest player there not realizing that he has to run away from goal to get to try to readjust to that pass that got filtered in. And Aubameyang was making a straight like straight run where he was always going to have the better shot. So it's a little bit more of a football IQ there. Other players would think, oh, Raheem's going to get it. I'll try to get open. And and Pierre, I, I guess you have to say his full name, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, just saw his chance. He's like, no, there's a better play here and I can make it. So that's the little thing. Like I just think he's he's clever enough to see the next step without just waiting. You know, I, I mentioned that under Tuchel, it felt like our attackers played hot potato and none of them wanted the responsibility. When hot potato song ends, nobody wanted to have it to be the guy that had to make that final choice. And Aubameyang is more than glad to be the one that takes the final strike. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to mention. Um, so I'm glad you pointed it out. I think that's the major difference between our, you know, number nine selection this year in Broja and Aubameyang compared to the years past. 
our biggest gripe about this team was that there was nobody willing to take fucking responsibility in front of goal. And now we have two number nines who are more than happy to take responsibility and take, the, take matters into their own hands. So I think what that's going to do in the long run is eventually take the pressure off guys like Raz. It's going to take pressure off the guys like Pulisic, Mount when he plays uh, up front, even Connor Gallagher, who we've seen deployed up there quite a bit. I think it's going to take some of the pressure off of those guys, and we're going to start seeing them produce little by little just because there's such a threat up top now, whether it is Broja or Obama. I love it. I love it. I love it. I cannot be happier with uh, what, he's, what he's contributed so far. I said it before or when we got him. If he got 10 goals this season, that would be a huge success. I could see him scoring. And I'm just talking about league goals. I think I can see him scoring like 12, maybe maybe 14. Um with the way that he's been playing and the way that the system was, has really worked well for him. Um, but yeah, man, it's been a while since we've been putting away goals like this and it feels good. Um, not to kill the mood, but um, Reese James, he did come out early with a knock. I'm saying knock because I'm hopeful. Um, Matt Law reported that two weeks is the worst case scenario. So that's a huge relief. Um, I, I, I'm not 100% sure whether that's a diag like actual medical diagnosis or if that's Matt Law's uh, assumption. But it didn't look bad. You know, he was, the way that he was walking and, you know, like it, it just, it looked, it didn't look as bad as people thought it would. Um, so who do you think, who do you guys see playing uh, in his spot during his recovery, Andreas? I think we, we probably have, I think we have like three or four matches in the next two weeks. Yeah, I think luckily we don't play Salzburg. Um, is it Salzburg next? Yeah, we don't play them for another two weeks, I don't think. So I think we go back to a back four in these Premier League matches. I mean, we've got Aston Villa this weekend. And I want to say that our next match after that is also against a, a more physical side. I'm blanking right now. But uh, let me Brent, see. Brentford. Brentford, thank you. It's Brentford. So for those and then United two, after. For those two matches, I think it's perfectly fine to, to have Aspie out there. As long as we're playing with that extra body up front, so whether that's um, Connor Gallagher in the right side of a four-two-three-one, or or perhaps it's just a more fluid attacking four-two-three-one, and Aspie has to just chill and stay back rather than be super offensive and roaming like he was against Wolves. So to ask him to do that for two to three matches in a row, I don't see an issue. If we go back three, we haven't seen Potter try this, but perhaps RLC slides out again like he was doing under Tuchel. But I think the option is going to be Aspie as a true right back, uh, more so than shoehorning somebody into that position. Yeah, there's really no complaints for me there. I think I think it's my mindset's exactly the same. If it's a back four, you can definitely play Aspie and sort of play safe and then utilize that left-hand side as you know the more attacking attack-minded side of the defense um but if we're playing a back three i think you have to put rlc there but then you're stuck with another conundrum because rlc has been so good in the center of the pitch the last few matches and he's i mean he's really coming into his own under potter especially i know we say it under every manager where he puts together a couple performances and we're like all right here we go here's the rlc we're asking for I don't think he's going to necessarily set the world on fire, but just in terms of the consistency of uh, the consistency of his performances is what's impressing me more than anything. So whether or not Potter is going to be willing to kind of take him out of that midfield and put him, you know, on the right side as a right wing back, it's a risk as a manager because on one hand, he might be able to take that form that he had in the center of the pitch and translate it to the right side of the pitch. 
But on the other hand, it might completely snap him out of rhythm because now his role is different. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think if it's a back four, you go Dave. Back three, you go RLC. Um, and then in the Champions League, I, d- I do like the back three. I like the way it's been looking so far under Potter. I think teams are having a hard time breaking it down. Um, and at the same time, it allows us to play both Jorginho and Kovacic, who, Jorginho at least, has been brilliant in Europe since Potter came in. Um, so, yeah. I think the last player that we need to talk about, um, Jorginho, because, man, he had a class, class performance, vintage Jorginho performance. And uh, I love and hate when he has performances like this. Obviously, I love it because it helps us win matches, but I hate it because I'm always reminded that these don't come very often. Like, if he could perform like he did against Milan on Tuesday, every match, you won't hear anyone on Twitter complaining about him. But unfortunately, it's not always the case. Um, He had 102 touches, 100% long balls completed, 97% pass accuracy, four ground duels won, three interceptions, two clearances, two tackles won, two key passes, and then the penalty. Uh, We got a a question from Ron, a.k.a. Bone Daddy Cool, a.k.a. Bone Daddy Deluxe, a.k.a. Bone Daddy Supreme. He said, this is my monthly Respect the Dawn tweet. How good was J5 today? Respect the Dawn, everyone. Respect Don Freo. Um, Andreas, what, what, what did you think of his performance? I mean, the performance was fantastic. I mean, the guy was... He did everything he's supposed to do. He kept the ball moving. He was looking to find forward balls more often than he usually does couple of things on defense that you like to see him add as well. Now, I hate to be the guy that's going to bring up the fact that we need to maybe take this with a grain of salt. Not like you said, because it's like, oh, it, these conformances don't come often. But I mean, it is convenient that the other team had 10 men for 70 minutes. And it is convenient that the other team had to, with a man less, try to create and score which means that anytime Jorginho receives the ball there will be an open man or if they try to go mark he's going to have all the time in the world to find the pass and if somebody's going to be scanning the field and finding that pass quickly out there it's going to be Jorginho so that early red card I'm sure I am 100% sure that Jorginho was immediately like oh thank God. That means Tanali and Benacer cannot be all up on my ass for the rest of this match. And he took full advantage. And for that he does deserve full credit. I don't I don't think people should take this and think that against every top team we play against, Jorginho is a hundred percent the solution. But hey, you have to play against the, what's in front of you. There was ten men and Jorginho took full advantage know what it is um, about the Champions League that makes Jorginho a completely different player compared to him in the Premier League. I mean, I'm sure the physicality has something to do with it, but in this game, Andres, I'm just going to kind of echo what you said and add to it. The fact that AC Milan was a man down definitely didn't help. They could not press Jorginho because it would just be a waste of energy. If you press Jorginho with 10 men, you know what he's going to do? He's going to pass it back to Thiago Silva, or he's going to pass it to Chalaba, or pass it to the other center back. And then we're just going to recycle possession over and over and over. He's too smart with the ball, with his one and two touch passing, for other teams to press him when they're a man down. Um, Now, in the Champions League, he's put together all of his best performances for Chelsea, I think. Um, I mean, he had his name in a Ballon d'Or hat in 2021 for god's sake just for you know how good he was in the champions league so i think it's just something about the competition and the fact that oftentimes the opponents are playing or the match is usually in front of Jorginho in the champions league so he's able to dictate play and be a little bit more himself with the ball 
and kind of play like that quote unquote regista role that we always like to talk about. Whereas in the Premier League, it is very hustle and bustle. There's every single team has a counter press or a high press. It's one of the two. And that just doesn't doesn't suit his game whatsoever. I feel like in the Premier League, the game is more so around Jorginho and oftentimes suffocates him um, in the middle of the pitch, as opposed to Europe, where the game is mostly in front of him. And he's able to, you know, predict the patterns of play a little bit better because he has just that split second more to think about things. So, um, I mean, credit to him, though, like you said, you can only play who's in front of you. And, you know, the fact that he got the goal doesn't the, the the fact that he scored the pen isn't the reason why we're talking about him today. And I think that's the important thing. You know, he was very safe with the ball. He was picking out some forward passes. I see here that he had two key passes as well. So it wasn't necessarily your typical Jorginho side-to-side recycle possession performance. It was very much a well-rounded Jorginho where we saw him play the defensive side. He did really well in possession by keeping the ball 97% pass accuracy. But he also looked forward, um, you know, to play the ball forward and created those two chances for us as well. So, and 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 that goes to kind of add on what I said about you know the the replacement for Reese James. I think in the Champions League we we look better with a back three because we're able to play a guy like Jorginho who is pretty much a nailed on hit every single time we start him in the Champions League. As long as the team around him is in form, he's going to be one of the standout players for us in this competition. So. Um, I think that's something that Graham Potter will kind of look at and take into consideration when he picks his teams for the Premier League matches compared to the Champions League. At least I hope it's something he considers because we can't be playing Jorginho two times a week every week. We saw what happened when we did that last season. He had that huge dip in form and he was public enemy number one or at least number two behind Pulisic. Whereas he come into this season um, and now his role is kind of, I don't want to say decrease because he still has the same duties when he's playing, but he's just not playing as frequently. And I feel like we're managing his minutes a little bit better. So if we keep playing him strictly in Europe as a starter, that's perfectly fine with me. But if it, that is the case, then we do need to play the back three. So he has an added protection behind him. Um, and then also it allows for him to have guys like a Ben Chilwell and a Reese James flanking him, um, you know, for, for that support on the wide. So I'm happy for him, man. The sad part is I don't know if he's necessarily going to be here much longer in terms of the long-term future at the club. But, I mean, he's here for now, and I think we should strictly keep him as a nailed-on starter for Champions League matches and then rotate him in, in a Premier League whenever we, whenever we absolutely need to. I, lo- I love the way that you described it. Like, I, I had really never thought of it this way about how um, – you know, in, in Champions League, the match is in front of him, as opposed to like in the Premier League, it's like around him, he's suffocating. Um, it's it's very true. I mean, that's just that's just the nature of the Premier League. It's 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 a more physical and I mean, way more talented league than anywhere else in the world. So, um, you know, I mean, Jorginho had a lot of great success in Italy, so. It, it's no, it shouldn't be a huge surprise that he uh, balled out against AC Milan, but um, it was just an interesting way that you put it. I never thought of it that way. All right, um, let's move on to some off-the-pitch news. And this, there, I have three things that I wanted, that I'm going to mention, and I don't think any of them warrant much discussion from us because... <laughs> everything's already been said about these three topics. The first one is Conte re-injuring himself in practice. I mean, that hamstring, it's hanging on by a, a string, hamstring. Um, Ziesh, apparently he's looking to exit in January, by January. Please, I, I would be very happy with that. And the Zakaria situation, I mean, he's, I mean, the team is trying to ship him off back to Juve by January. And, uh, I mean, it's just looking like a failed loan deal before it even started. And it's just um, very disappointing. So I don't know if you guys wanted to say anything just because we've talked about all three of these topics so much in the past, but if there's anything you wanted to add, are no. we going to see Conte 
in 2022. Yeah. I don't think so. For Chelsea or for France? I think this is perfect timing for Conte to have a little injury setback right before the World Cup, just so he could kind of make sure he's not rushed back, make sure that... I mean, if France do make a run, how many games are they expected to play, assuming they go to the final? What, like eight or seven? Something like that? Something along those lines, yeah. Yeah, so I think he definitely has that in his head. But at the same time, and, and, and I'm not saying this because I want him gone or anything like that, but I'm saying it because it's inevitable. Conte is not a part of the long-term future of the club anymore. So even if he is healthy, do we just slot him right back in and rely on him from day one again? I mean, Tuchel was so happy to do that every single time he came back from, from injury. Granted, yeah. we did play our best football when, when we had a healthy Conte on the pitch. But if you're Graham Potter, you're getting a tune out of the team without him. It might be a better idea to sort of, if he is healthy, to not necessarily bring him back in as a nailed-on starter week in and week out and overplay him again. It might just be a good idea to rotate him into the side and then you know, let him ride off into the sunset when his contract is up or when a, when a suitable offer comes. But if I'm Graham Potter, I'm looking at this and being like, all right, I got a tune out of these guys who are the future of the club. And I'm talking about Mason Mount, Connor Gallagher, guys like RLC, even Kovacic, um, as opposed to guys like Jorginho and Conte, who don't necessarily fit the, uh, the profile anymore. Conte, at least in the injury sense, definitely doesn't mm. fit the profile. The best ability is availability. And uh, that was something that he had in abundance in his early stint with Chelsea. He never got hurt. And now it just seems like everything's kind of catching up to the poor guy. I mean, he, he literally ran himself to the ground. Yeah, I'm, I'm just hoping we rekindle that Edson Alvarez deal um, in January because we are in desperate need of a of a cdm um or any defensive minded midfielder just in general um it'll be interesting it'll be interesting because we're also looking into getting a sporting director and technical director and we know they're going to be in cahoots with grant potter in terms of what he's going to recommend we go after so I'll be interested to see if the same targets that we had late in the summer window pop up in January, because that'll be really telling as to how much say Graham Potter has in the situation. If we see Edson Alvarez rumors pop up again in January and there are substantial rumors that are backed by valid sources, then that probably tells you that, you know, he's more so of a club signing than a, than a manager signing. Because I think based on pure profile, he doesn't necessarily fit the style that Potter wants to play. Quick passing, quick possession. Granted, he's a great DM and he's a great ball winner, but I mean, his range of passing is fairly limited. So you would definitely have to account for that if you're going to go splash the cash on a guy like that. Yeah, I mean, talking about the uh, the director of football, is it is it not final that the guy from... Uh, RB Leipzig um, is, is just in discussion or what? What I know that we signed uh, or we're very close to signing Joe Shields from Southampton, formerly at um, Man City, um, to be head of recruitment, which yeah. is really exciting news. Um, as if our youth uh, academy already wasn't wasn't good enough already. Um, so. Let's see what happens. I think the the, the Bell guy is getting hired to be technical director. So that's Uh like your your Peter Check role. So we would still need a sporting director. And and a name that popped up recently was the Norwich sporting director. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely random. Uh, But Boley also said that he's okay with being the guy making the deals one more window. So I don't know. The more the longer we take in hiring a sporting director, the longer I think that um I'm blanking on his name, Edwards could be a real possibility come next summer. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. As of right now, we'll have head of scouting, we have um technical director about to get confirmed, we have um Graham Potter's little scouting guru guy in our staff as well mm-hmm. so the, the pieces are moving if you have all these guys working together already 
maybe they can navigate the January window. Big Daddy Bowley can just write up the checks. And then come summertime, I think it's Michael Edwards. Am I am I saying is that who is that his name from the, the former Liverpool guy? If I'm if not sure his, that uh, is. It's the the DOF that made Liverpool what they mm-hmm. are now, I guess. And um you know, he can then finish his sabbatical and decide to come back. Um but who knows? At this point, no, there isn't any more sporting director links though. Michael Edwards is is his name, by the way. I just looked it up. It's like good on you. Um all right. Let's finish up. Aston Villa on, on this weekend. Um Villa is not looking too hot right now. Um in their last five matches, their their form is loss, draw, a win against Southampton, and then t- followed by two draws. Um I think uh, in the in this this season they have three goals scored and four goals conceded. Oh, in the last um, five. Oh, and that's in the last five. Okay, that's, yeah. I, was, I wasn't too sure what that meant, but <laughs> I was gonna say, damn, if they only have three goals scored this season, <laughs> sheesh. But um, yeah, they are definitely in a really really cold spell right now, so it's good timing for us to play against them. Stevie G's on the hot seat. Um, they do have a number of injuries with new signing Diego Carlos out with an inj- uh, Achilles injury. August Augustinson, um, he has a ha- hammy inj- injury. He may be back. Um, Bubakar Kamara, he's out with a knee injury. Leon Bailey, doubtful with a muscle injury. Lucas Digne may be back, but he has an a- ankle injury as well. I mean, those are five of their most important players. Um, and, it, it, I mean, we've been very, very lucky uh, when it comes to opponents' uh, injuries in the past couple of matches. So the luck continues. Let's see which one of these guys or which of these guys will be available. Um, but Andreas... What's some things to look out for? I think we may be seeing the first Armando Broja start. That's my big prediction going into the weekend. I think we could see Broja starting this match. And I also think um, Gallagher will get another start. So to me, I think... It's going to be a little bit more of a battle in the trenches in midfield, so I don't expect someone like Jorginho. But wouldn't it be nuts if another one of our young players scored against their former club and Chukwameka somehow gets minutes and scores against Villa and gets his debut Chelsea goal against them? That'd be nuts. Um, now, I, I think Broja will get the start. I think Broja will score. And I think it'll be... It'll be one of those games where it's going to take us a while to get comfortable just because I expect Villa to to come out and try to outwork us on the pitch. So I'm going to say 2-0, but the second goal is going to be a very late goal. I mean, I, I hope it'll be fairly comfortable. I, I watched their game against Nottingham Forest last week, and they really only seem to have about 15 minutes of good football in them. Um, I'm just kind of looking at the table here. They are the lowest scoring side, not in a drop zone. They only scored seven goals on the season, um, which is pretty sad. The only team that actually scored less than them was Wolves. And they only scored three. So if, if, if that tells you anything, they struggle to create. And I also know that um, they've deployed a multitude of positions this season, uh, or positions, uh, formations, excuse me. Um, so they don't necessarily have a dead set way of playing that they can fall back and rely on when they do play the big boys like us. So I think that uh, Stevie G is probably going to put out another weird formation, um, but I'm not really too fussed about the threat that they pose because, I mean, let's be honest, their squad really doesn't make much sense in terms of the attack. They have a bunch of guys that play in similar positions and they don't really have any true wide players. So they have like three tens 
basically they have Ramsey, they have Buendia, and they have Coutinho. And then they have two strikers and Ings and Ollie Watkins. And then outside of that, their only true out-and-out wing uh, attacking player that could be considered a winger is Leon Bailey. And he's out. So that's really the only guy that I can see who can hurt us in a 1v1 type situation. Um, so outside of that, I think it's the similar approach that we had against Wolves. It's a team that doesn't necessarily know how to score goals. Um, so we should put out an aggressive, aggressive side that's really just going to take it to them right from the first kick. So I'm going to raise, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go one higher than you, Andres. I think it's going to be 3 0. I think we'll get two in the first half and a comfortable one in the second. Um, but in terms of Aston Villa, I mean, I think they're in trouble this year. And uh, for them, if, if you're Steven Gerrard and you're talking to them pre-match, this is a must-win because if you lose, you potentially run the risk of, you know, dropping down to 17th if Wolves can scrap out a victory. So um, it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out, but I think it'll be comfortable 3 now. I think you guys know where I'm going with this, but um, let's not forget just a couple matches ago, they did draw against Man City 1-1, which was a huge result for them. I foresee a similar result, hard-fought battle, both sides, you know, hard-fought, and I'm predicting a 2-2 draw. All right. And by the way, bit. thank you for, for telling me to say a 2-2 draw for that Milan ma- match as well. I made sure oh. to get that in the pod for you last Thank last you. Yeah, of course. Clutch. No, no, thank you, Sam. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Sam. Uh, <laughs> well, what would Chelsea be without me? And, and Sam is spelled with two twos instead of an S. It's, it's numbers and letters. And you name oh, it. oh, my God. I think that's a good place to end it. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I well, think we both grunted at the same time. <laughs> oh, well, um, that does bring us to the end of the show, at least this episode. Uh, make sure you're following us on Twitter at Blues on Parade. We do post an episode after every single match, at least we try our best to. Um, and also look out for our tweets if you want to be included in the pod and get a shout out. We send a tweet out. Um, shortly after every every match, um, just asking to get your questions in. So make sure that you don't miss that window if you want to be included on the pod. So uh, until next week, keep the blue flag flying high.